And perhaps it's a good time after those prayers just to say thank you for those who do pray, uh, for those of us in leadership positions. Uh, we can't always explain ourselves, so it is good to know that there is a faithful cohort of those who will pray for us, whatever may happen or seem to be happening. So thank you. Well, would you please find Romans chapter 6? It's on page 1132. As I look back over the year, uh, I am struck by one feature really powerfully. There are areas where we are, and I can say it of you because it's mostly you, not me, where we are really good as a church at mission. We are good with children. We've heard about the holiday club, about the club and the bridge, and in our prayers we mentioned other areas like uh, Noah's boat. We are good with asylum seekers. The work of English Plus seems to go from strength to strength. Uh, There are questions that will have to be asked soon. How many more people we can, with genuine safety, uh, keep in our space because the space is being used so well on a Thursday. And it uses lots of volunteers. Lots of us are serving in that work. We are good uh, with the overseas. Uh, Colin, uh, Colin um, Bearup visited us recently, and we've heard about the Barneses. Do please hold in your prayers, Penny Bakewell, who will be traveling back soon from Ghana. Uh, Her father has just died. It's not unexpected, and lots of us have been praying with her and for her and for the family. Um, But it has finally happened, and she will be making her way back. And you can imagine what that uh, may be like. We are getting good at those who may need the kind of help that our Catalyst program is seeking to help the efforts to align our local outreach. We're good uh, with some of those who are older in our area. There's been a a fresh uh, spark uh, in our Melbourne Cottages work. And yet, by the same token, these works all, to me, describe effectively uh, a package that has a whole in the center. We are not good with the people that look like most of us when we look at our mirror in the morning. Adult Brits who are pottering along and may well be fairly self-sufficient. It's really the same point. I didn't know that she'd make it, but it's really the same point that Jennifer made in our interview. Those of us who are in uh, Britain or the or the rest of Europe, who just potter along. We're very good at those who are younger, older, from different places. But what about those that we are most like? As I listen to the stories that we have to tell one another, it seems to me that 
we are like one side of a Velcro uh, tape, uh, frantically trying to scratch onto a Teflon surface, that we feel we've got the, the, something to offer, but the world around us just allows us to slide off because it's not very interested. I think it's very important, if we're talking about that, to make it clear that I do mean it when I say us. It's not a polite preacher language for you. I find this the most difficult. If I'm honest, I can go through a week and be very grateful that the, the doing the job calls me to spend time with children or older people or people who are not English, people who are not like me. Because actually, if I'm telling the truth, I know I find people like me the hardest to reach. And I hear the same stories coming from you. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we could get better, good as we are at so much, if we could get better at mission with those like us. Well, what could we do? We could run a conference, no doubt. We could run a special Saturday training session. We could um, uh, try urging more seriously, which would feel perhaps a bit like a whip, to just try harder. We might try and learn special techniques. But we don't seem to need those techniques just to get on with those people who are like us, because they are our friends. After all, they're the people we spend most time with. I suspect that if we struggle, it may well be that we are not wholly living the Christian life that would persuade us, let alone anyone else. So it's not surprising we lack confidence. Janet, uh, bless Janet, for being the first person, I think, in our congregation ever to say to me, based on the words on that wall, Alan, have you grown more like Jesus in the last year? I take some comfort from knowing that whatever my own perception of the answer is, if I have, or if I haven't, it'll be someone else that notices. Maybe we ourselves came to faith in younger years, like so many, and now we aren't sure what's to be done for our own generation. And I think Romans 6 has some answers. Paul has built up an argument that uh, says the law is fulfilled, the law's time is over, we stand now by grace. And so he begins in in verse 1 of chapter 6 by imagining what someone may say back to him. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to assume that you know the story of the prodigal son. You know that he goes off into a far country, he wastes his life in riotous living, and he decides to come back. And he thinks he's going to have to fall at his father's feet and say, make me one of like, like one of your hired hands. Instead of which the father runs out to him and uh, says... Uh, it's so wonderful to have you back. This is my son who uh, was dead and is now alive. Uh, Go and get the the fatted calf and kill it because we're going to have a party. We read the reaction of the elder son who's not at all impressed with that. Now imagine the next year. Imagine the prodigal son saying, gee, that worked out quite well. 
sin abounded, my sin, and grace increased. I think I'll do that again. But we don't suppose he did it again because we sort of get the point that he was supposed to be different because of the experience of grace. And Paul is saying, how nonsensical to suppose that if you've been welcomed back into the Father's house, if you have been dead and you are now alive, why would, why would you do that again? Why would you put yourself through that? By no means. But that question in verse 1 may no longer actually occur to us in the last year since we last had an annual meeting. Has that occurred to you? Maybe I'll sin more so that grace can increase. And if it doesn't occur to us, as it did to Paul's first readers, I wonder if that's because grace itself no longer strikes us amidships with its astonishment in the way that it clearly hit Paul's readers. He expected it to hit them so that verse 1 there rose up as an objection. Now, the first 14 verses of chapter 6 are not easy. And I'm not going to go through every detail tonight, because it's not that kind of occasion. The argument seems like it goes round and round, and it can sound hard to follow. I just want to propose a quick structure to try and make sense of it. Perhaps it will help if you want to go and look at it uh, later. Verses 1 to 4. We are baptized now into the death of Jesus Christ in order to walk now in newness of life. Uh, we, uh, we too may live a new life is how that's translated, but it, it means to walk in newness of life. Uh, now, uh, for the third time today in sermons, uh, we get to explain something. Some of you will have heard two other of our preachers saying the same thing, that Christ is not a surname. Uh, when we read Paul saying uh, Christ Jesus, and when through most of this he says simply Christ, we can usefully replace that with the word Messiah. Christ just comes from Christos, it means anointed, the Hebrew for anointed, from which the word is picked up is Mashiach, Messiah. Once we realize that, the, that Christ is not a surname and that it is indeed a title, we are, stop, we are stopped from thinking that this is just about something that happened to an individual and it happened to happen to them. And we're reminded that this happened to someone who had a role and a title. So, for example, in uh, verse 4 there, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. And what that tale tells us is that the Messiah is at the final point, the apex of all of a people's hopes and dreams and ambitions. Just as he, the Messiah, did what Messiah was always supposed to do, the anointed king, uh, representing his people. Just as Messiah was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now that works for me. It's not just an individual who's ra been raised from the dead. It is this bearer of all those hopes over the centuries. And if he has been raised from death as this apex, because that's what he is in the Old Testament, he's the very culmination 
of all of a people's hopes. If that's happened, if all the people of God have got, as it were, uh, like an hourglass shape and the, the, the people has got narrower and narrower through the experiences of exile and finally comes down to one point, the Messiah of Israel, then it becomes possible for me to believe that the other side, like an hourglass, there is a people waiting to fit into him. So I can read that, not as a surname, but as knowing that that is my Messiah. That is the one who has borne the hopes that I am now born into. Verses 5 to 7. This is a focus on us. If the last verses talked about walking now in newness of life, in verses 5 to 7, we're brought to understand that because of the unity uh, that we have with our Messiah in death, because the body of sin has been crucified, not, uh, not that my body is sinful, but that, but that which is sinful about who I am, that unity in death leads to unity in a future resurrection, focusing on us, then in verses 8 to 10, we focus on him. Because Messiah died, we will live with the Messiah who was raised. Because if he is that one, if he's the one who has had all those hopes, then of course it must be the case, just by a kind of image reflection of an hourglass, that there's going to be a people the other side of that death. And so Paul then comes to press home the points. So, verse 11, you count yourself dead to sin and alive to God, as he is. Then in verses 12 to 13, so live for righteousness. Worth explaining that, righteousness. If I was to take a poll, I suspect we would start talking about what it means to be righteous in terms of uh, rules that might be kept being righteous means maybe the reflection of the Ten Commandments, not doing the things you shouldn't and doing the things you should. But it doesn't wholly mean that, though it does mean that. Before all that, it means something of uprightness. It means having total integrity of character, expressed in those Ten Commandments ways that you can read on your left-hand side. But it's that prior sense of a character that is totally faithful, And on those days when I'm not entirely sure whether I've kept the Sabbath, I do know that I still want to have that totally, that that character of total integrity, that righteousness that is so far removed from self-righteousness, but is just whole, complete, upright. And then in verse uh, 14... For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And I want you to look at that last verse, because that, it seems to me, shows our problem when we are looking at uh, chapter 6. If there's a for to it, for sin shall not be your master, well, that sounds good, because you're not under law, that sounds better, but under grace, better still, then shouldn't life be fantastic? Shouldn't those little reports, those little conversations that you had for two or three minutes earlier just have the most amazing stories of victory over sin in your life? Shouldn't it, they have amazing witness of uh, conquering the challenges that oppress you and me? 
and yet they don't. And so we wonder whether this chapter's kind of, well, probably good for us, but not very real. We don't live in victory. We are weary of being at church and being summoned to it, perhaps. It doesn't seem to have worked enough, verse 14. We know that even if sin should not be our master, we know too much of it in our own lives. And we may just be a bit bored with the struggle that it represents. Verse 14, just, it's nice. But it doesn't seem to have worked enough. Well, actually, we have never, you and I, fully lived under what Paul is describing. Let me tell you what a really focused God follower does about sin. And this story springs out of the time that some of us spent recently in Israel. I was um, interested in the different hats and facial furniture that Orthodox Jews wear. Uh, some wear, most wear beards, many don't. Uh, some have, have followed the uh, law of Israel around not cutting the corners of their hair. But there's one sect that then tucks the, corner, the hair behind the ears, and there's another sect that hangs forward, and then you've got your variations of the, some sects which hang far, this far down, and then there's some that go down here. Anyway, I got onto the topic of beards with someone. And there's a, there's a rule in the law of Israel that says you shall not cut your beard. And so, in our generation, there are schools of, rabbinic schools of thought that say, yes, but what does it mean to cut your beard? Obviously, it would not be possible to use uh, uh, the kind of wet razor that I use, because that would clearly be cutting. However, there's a particular kind of Philips rotary head razor uh, with three tops to it, and you can take the tops off, and underneath... There are two sets of like wheels that, that run counter to each other. And the top set is a cutting set. So the rabbis involved in this school advise their followers to take the tops off, take off that rotor, uh, and leave the underlying rotor because that is a grinding rotor. So with that, you are allowed to grind off your beard, but you are not allowed to cut. And we laugh. But there are people out in our world who take that Jewish law so seriously that they follow. Similarly, some of you are wearing um, spectacles tonight. I'm not wearing mine. Um, uh, And some of you will have plastic frames and some of you will have metal frames. There's a a division in rabbinic schools of thought as to whether it's permissible to wear uh, metal frames to your glasses because that's a mixing of glass and metal. Whereas if you wear plastic lenses and plastic frames, that's the same material being used for frames and lenses, and therefore that's kosher. And I wanted to remind you of what it's like to follow the law in order not to sin. That's what it's like to follow the law of God and to be concerned not 
to sin. You end up uh, endlessly analyzing what you did that day and saying sorry for the things that you have to repent about it. So what does verse 14 mean in practice? The law is no longer of effect. He's going to go on to say more about that, and I'm not going to say much more. Law belongs with a dead body because its time is up, the Jewish law. It was needed, but it led to an obsession amongst those godly inclined, and I've just quoted you two examples, with what sins have I committed? It allowed for no growth. And it is growth that seems to me the great possibility that's there in verse 14. Law lies dead, but grace gives discipleship, growth, relationship, the breath of life, walking in newness of life. Don't become weary with your own sinfulness. If the Holy Spirit is pointing out to you continuing sin in your life, just make sure that you are part of some subgroup of the church that can affirm over time that they are seeing you change. I think of one person who has in the last three years, someone from our own congregation, and in advancing years, acquired a sweetness of character that was not there three years ago. Probably doesn't seem any different to himself, but others notice, I notice, and it persuades me of what verse 14 is saying. You are not under law, you are under grace, and only in grace can you grow. If you're worrying about what kind of razor you're wearing, if you're worrying about what kind of specs you're wearing, you are not growing. There are different ways I want, thought about finishing, and I'll, 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 I just want to tell a story, really, because it contains the hope that anyone, any minister, and we are all ministers, any of us as ministers should want for ourselves. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, some friends visited from Australia. I probably only see him every, what, six, five, six years or so. Um, last time, in fact, I saw him at Simon Elphick's house. Where's Simon? When did we last see Preston? Yeah, five years ago. He suffers from cystic fibrosis, as does his brother. They carry uh, the relevant gene. Uh, he's a walking miracle because he's grown up in a particular generation that as, um, uh, as he gets older, the horizon for surviving cystic fibrosis uh, goes further and further ahead uh, with him. He, uh, had he been born, I don't know, 50 years ago, he would, as it were, at this age now, be dead. But he, his brother was baptized not very long ago. And uh, at the baptism, the, uh, someone I can't remember who uh, wrote for his brother that line in Ephesians about God who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And now whenever he and his brother, both suffering from CF, 
uh, get together, they toast one another, and they look forward to immeasurably more. It's not a bad toast. It matters hugely to them because they didn't know they'd be alive by this point. And in a passage which is talking about death and life, it has to be the prayer of any minister, and that's all of us, for all other ministers, and that's all of us, that in the year to come, we ourselves would so know the immeasurably more that it's out of that that we would then have something to offer. Yes to all those people around the edges whom God loves desperately, but also to those people in the middle, to those who are most like us. And so, uh, I haven't got a glass to toast with, but let's pray. And perhaps a moment of quiet, because as I look around the room, I know some of the challenges that some of us have faced in the last year. And a time of quiet to lay before God our own heart, to know the immeasurably more that only grace, only Jesus, only the Messiah, not the law, can open up for us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.